there's a lot of people mad at the big tech companies. And, and frankly, I, I have no lost love for them. I think they've done a lot of wrong things, but they're actually mad at them for completely different reasons, right? People, uh, we just testified, uh, my colleague Corinne McSherry just testified uh, in Congress yesterday. And you know, a, a chunk of Congress is mad because they feel like uh, conservative voices are being censored too much by these platforms. And another chunk of Congress is mad because they feel like um, hateful speakers are not being censored enough. Um, so these two things um, don't point to a single solution. In fact, they point in very different directions. And again, I think some transparency, some real due process on behalf of the platforms would be a really good place to start. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Have you seen Snowden? Do you know about government surveillance, Facebook stealing your data, and pretty much everyone keeping an eyeball on you when you're online? If so, you need to know about Cindy Cohen and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. The National Law Journal named Cindy one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America in 2013, noting, if Big Brother's watching, you better look out for Cindy Cohen, because that's what she does. She's the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and was an outside lead attorney in the Bernstein versus the Department of Justice's successful First Amendment challenge on U.S. exportation restrictions of cryptography. Cindy spent most all of her career in civil liberties and law looking at the effects of net neutrality, surveillance, privacy, and of course free speech when it comes to democracy and the world writ large. This one's a really fun one, especially considering the time we're living in right now with Hong Kong protests, Facebook, and Equifax selling you out, and of course the government trying to get their hands on whatever data they can to make the world a better place, but often a bit more Minority Report-esque. In 2018, Forbes listed Cindy as one of the top 50 most influential women in America. In today's episode, we'll discuss how censorship leads to authoritarianism. I hope you're listening. Why freedom of speech is such a tricky tightrope to walk and why you really can't lean either way. Why tech monopolies and failing markets make privacy so pathetic. The realistic issues with breaking up big tech and why Cindy doesn't think it'll happen and some better alternatives. How the U.S. government seeks to emulate Chinese authoritarianism. What to do about the Trump Twitter problem. Which tech giants worry Cindy the most and why? And the implications of brain-machine interfaces when it comes to privacy, security, and the sanctity, so to speak, of your thoughts. This one's a fun one with someone who's fought in the trenches against encroachments on liberty for all of us. Whether you've heard of the EFF, you've heard of Cindy or not, she's fighting on your behalf, whether you realize it or not. So I'm sure you guys will love this episode. I'm sure it'll be incredibly enlightening. And I'm sure that at the end of it, like me, you're going to feel super compelled to put some tape on your webcam camera, share this around with a friend, and by all means, clear your internet browsing history. So without further ado, I give you Cindy Cohen. Quick time out. Do you exercise or want the best from your brain and body on a daily basis? I know I do. And if you do, you should check out Onnit's top performance line of brain and body enhancing, keto, paleo, and pretty much everything friendly supplements like Alpha Brain, MCT Oil, and Total Human. Prefer a solid grass-fed whey or a double caffeinated drip to go hard? What about a powerhouse set of probiotics? They got it all and the science to back up their formulations. Plus, you can get a 10% off offer just for listeners by going to disruptors.fm slash onnit with two N's, O-N-N-I-T, and using coupon code disruptors at checkout. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash onnit, O-N-N-I-T, and using disruptors at checkout. They have everything that elite performers need, mentally and physically, to be at the best. Are you looking to grow yourself and your bottom line in the process? Do you need help scaling, growth hacking, and marketing, or with fundraising and introductions? If you want to 10x your business and build towards a sustainable future, be that a startup or a Fortune 500 company, I love helping businesses change the world for the better. I've been a founder, built startups and seven-figure businesses, coached and advised dozens and more, and learned my passion and purpose is pushing entrepreneurs to succeed. If you're a winner, aiming big, willing to go hard, and interested in potentially working together to up-level yourself and your business, I'd love to chat. mattward.io slash coaching for more details. And now let's get on with the episode. 
We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So let's kick things off with a big question. So Cindy, what are you more worried about today? The state of freedom of speech in the press or what we're seeing in terms of content crea- uh, content curation and censorship? Well, I think they're intertwined, right? Because if uh, we don't get the balance right in terms of freedom of speech, then uh, we end up with, you know, people not being able to speak, which is, you know, not, uh, and marginalized voices, especially not being able to speak. If we over go too far on the censorship side, we also mean that people cannot speak. So if you're really, to me, concerned about freedom of speech, you have to actually find a balance between the two. It's, it's not one or the other. How do we find that balance and how do we do it in a way that works for everybody? Well, I think we have to rem- we have to center the user. We have to center the speaker in the conversation and 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 we also have to, we have a long way to go before we do that. But I think the first thing we need to do is we need to have some pr- much better insights into what's going on with our speech online, especially with the big platforms. I mean, anybody who has looked at the situation says that the black box way in which the big tech companies are doing their content moderation leaves everybody the worse off because it's difficult to tell how decisions are being made. There's no appeal process. There's no transparency into into these things. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, rich, important people get favoritism in this system. I mean, anybody who's watched Twitter knows that the best way to get a response from Twitter is to be a celebrity, right? That's not right either. So, The first thing that we've done is we have worked with a bunch of other organizations to come up with something called the Santa Clara Principles, which are just basic due process principles around transparency and decision making by people who host other people's speech. And um, once we get a picture on that, we can do a better job of figuring out what's going on and where we might need to make some shifts. But right now, I think that the a lot of people have correctly diagnosed that there's a problem and are rushing to solutions without uh, enough information. Because everyone's essentially saying, oh, I'm being underrepresented, regardless of what the data says. Right. And this is one of the things that um, is, I think, makes the situation pretty dangerous is that there's a lot of people mad at the big tech companies. And and frankly, I, I have no lost love for them. I think they've done a lot of wrong things, but they're actually mad at them for completely different reasons, right? People, uh, we just testified, uh, my colleague Corinne McSherry just testified uh, in Congress yesterday, and, you know, a, a chunk of Congress is mad because they feel like uh, conservative voices are being censored too much by these platforms. And another chunk of Congress is mad because they feel like um, hateful speakers are not being censored enough. Um, so these two things um, don't point to a single solution. In fact, they point in very different directions. And again, I think some transparency, some real due process on behalf of the platforms would be a really good place to start. Speaking of due process, how do we handle rules? I'm pretty sure the president's broken all of Twitter's rules at this (laughs) point, almost daily. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. I think you're in a, I I think Twitter's in a bit of a bunch of a conundrum because, you know, the president is uh, he, he's, he's news, right? You know, in addition to being obnoxious on Twitter, there's news that happens in, in what the president says. And I think it's important that, you know, we as citizens be informed about what our president is doing and saying, which makes him in a slightly different category than just you or me. And I'm not sure what Twitter should do in this situation, but I think whatever they do, it, it ought to be rule-based and defensible and not a one-off situation for for, you know, one guy. And I know for you guys with the EFF, freedom of speech is a really big deal. How close to libertarian are you in terms of anything goes for free speech? <laughs> well, I think that um, it really depends on which libertarian you're talking to. The, there's not really a, a um, I don't think there's a single definition. And I don't think free speech is only a libertarian concern. I actually would fight your fight your hypo a little bit. I mean, free speech is written in the United States Constitution. It's something that people of all political stripes um, need and can use. I mean, I think of EFS role as kind of we're kind of like the plumbers of freedom, right? We try to get obstacles out of the way of empowering users. And freedom of speech is clearly one of the most important tools. And, and we work with people all over the world, very far from the American political context at all, who are desperately trying to get their voices heard. And, and, and really, I think that it doesn't fit very well into the current 
political framing of the of the United States, freedom of expression. It's not just a U.S. value, right? It's in in all the international human rights uh, treaties and agreements as well. So, you know, our view is that the goal ought to be that everybody on the planet can have their voice heard and that consequences for speech that causes harm should fall on the speaker. What do you think about some of the European initiatives and some of what Germany's done? So they have freedom of speech with some caveats. So one of the caveats being you can't be a Nazi. And (laughs) it seems to work well. You don't see a lot of white rhetoric hate speech coming from Germany as much. Yet at the flip side, there are potential dangers. Who decides? How do you think about the caveats to free speech? Is that a good idea or is it too slippery of a slope? Well, I don't think that Germany is doing any better than we are when it comes to white supremacy. I mean, they just had a guy try to shoot up a synagogue during Yom Kippur services. White supremacy is on the rise all across Europe, as well as in the United States. And I don't think that the difference in the rules about free speech are making any significant difference in the rise of this. And it's one of the things I think that if the if at the time you're trying to stop hate you're, is the time where people are speaking it, you're way late in the process, right? I mean, we need to work on stopping the rise of authoritarianism and white supremacist hate far before it gets to the place where somebody's saying something online, if we're going to ever have a hope to do it. And again, I look at Austria, which has those same anti-Nazi rules. Look at Germany. I don't think that free speech, that, that cutting back on free speech is going to get people who are concerned to their goals because we are not seeing a significant difference between the countries that have anti-Nazi laws, uh, anti, anti-hate speech laws, and the countries that don't. But we do see a lot less on the platforms. And let's play devil's advocate. We wouldn't have a flat earth movement if it wasn't for people creating YouTube videos and getting sucked down. Uh, the rabbit hole, so to speak. And the only reason why mostly suckers and kids are falling for this is because they're finding those rabbit holes to begin with. Well, I think that the flat earth movement existed before there was an internet. And, but I do think that you've got your finger on something, um, which is important, which is, you know, the the dis- algorithmic decision making about what people say next, this suck down the rabbit hole idea isn't a purely a, a free speech thing. These are these are algorithmic decisions about what you're seeing next, whether that's on YouTube or other things that are in control of the companies and that are a proper place for us to put some pressure on them. I think it's really hard to come up with rules that would fit in a legal framework, but I think it's perfectly legitimate for us to go to these companies and say, you know, you've prioritized keeping us outraged because you know that keeps us on the platform right i mean this is the this is the realization of our time which is if you want to keep people on a platform keep them pissed off and angry and feeling like they're the victims of some big conspiracy that keeps people engaged and the, the problem is is that's pretty toxic uh, for our society as a whole so i think that it's perfectly legitimate to talk to the platforms that are doing algorithmic recommendations and algorithmic sorting about what it is they're doing and why they're doing it and and really push them to make make some changes. I think that's very legitimate. But I think that the part where you're trying to decide who gets to where you want these companies to decide who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak is extremely dangerous, won't work. They're lousy at it and will backfire against marginalized people. You know, one of the things that I think is important and we try to say this a lot is, you know, EFF has been around for 30 years. And I've been at EFF for nearly 20 of those. And we spend a lot of time looking at who struggles to get their voice heard online and who doesn't. And historically, it's marginalized people. They are the first ones to go when there's a censorship regime. They have the hardest time getting their voice out there in the first place. So when you put pressure on these companies to censor and they proudly announce that they've taken down thousands of people's speech, that doesn't fall necessarily in the way that you would make those decisions or that we as a society might decide to make those decisions, that invariably falls on marginalized voices. And unless we reckon with that fact, we're not going to help marginalized voices by encouraging more censorship. We're ultimately going to hurt this. And we see this, right? We see people who are engaged in democracy activism, whether you know it's places like Hong Kong or here at home, they get flagged. As engaging in hate speech, you know, there's the, you know, the Black Lives Matter people get flagged for hate speech. The people, again, you know, so I think you have to worry about what the tools are that you're embracing here and reckon with the chances of backfire before 
before moving in. And that's that's one of the reasons why we are very, very nervous about, say, uh, reforms to Section 230, which is the kind of secondary liability that has been floated for platforms for the speech of their users. It's going to incentivize platforms against letting anybody, you know, a, a, you know, towards something that looks more like that, that has censorship that, say this more peculiarly, we've seen that those kinds of pressures lead to censorship of marginalized voices far more often than they lead to censorship of, of, of majority voices. Well, they also lead to censorship of startups because then the startups aren't able to comply you you create the incumbent that cannot be killed. Absolutely, and of course, I know this is disrupt. I should have I should have fronted that one. You know, there's multiple arguments for why this is a bad idea, but the biggest one, and and my my colleague Elliot Harmon just put a got an uh, editorial in the New York Times today on just this point about you know the anti-competitive effects of getting rid of uh, of creating secondary liability for platforms and. You know, we had a great example of this or an awful example of this, depending on your position. You know, Congress just last year passed a law called FOSTA, which was nominally aimed at getting sex trafficking off of these platforms. It created secondary liability for platforms when there's sex trafficking um, occurring on them, which is a, a serious problem. Um, but what happened? A whole bunch of platforms that hosted uh, dating or, uh, you know, dating systems and Craigslist dropped their dating ad, Tumblr dropped a bunch of stuff that that had been used for dating. And, um, and Facebook moved in. They now have a dating service. Why? Because they're big and they can handle the need to do that kind of pre-screening of every single message and the little guys couldn't. So, you know, I think you also have to pay really, really close attention to what responsibilities you're putting on secondary, you know, on platforms, um, because it's going to be just, you know, if you care about the competition issues that we're facing right now, which is something that I'm paying, you know, we're paying increasing attention to. And I think we're all seeing that as having an impact on our civil liberties, creating more burdens for the big tech companies um, without paying attention to the anti-competitive effects is really problematic. Which of the big tech companies are you most worried about and why? Well, I think it depends on what you're concerned about. I, I mean, I think that, you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft are all big um, and they have different kinds of problems. So, you know, for Apple, I think they've done a really good job at standing up for privacy, but they really do try to lock you in to their system and it's really hard to get out of it. You know, they do a lot of handcuffing people into their system, whether it's through their apps or their services or things like that. And so I think that's a problem on one level. I think that, you know, Facebook is a, a, a privacy nightmare. Uh, for people. I think Google's a privacy nightmare for people. And Google, you know, uh, and they both do different kinds of tracking of users uh, and then, you know, feeding that into the system of, of tracking, you know, the whole the whole uh, ecosystem of, you know, slicing and dicing you and, 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 con and trying to feed you uh, content that you want, which is itself then gets reified, right? This is how this algorithmic decision making that leads people to more extreme positions is part of a business model. And both Facebook and Google are, are big purveyors of that. I think Amazon has its own issues. Certainly, we are very unhappy with Amazon right now because of the ring partnerships that they have with police to try to you know, surveil formerly public places. And, you know, there's, a, I think, a big single point of failure with the Amazon Web Services as the back end to everything everybody does that, that makes me increasingly nervous. And then, so anyway, so I think, I'm not sure I want to rank them, but I think that there, there are anti-competitive concerns about all of them. And then more importantly, for me, uh, you know, we have... I'm increasingly seeing a problem where people aren't developing new technologies because they want to be a competitor, but instead developing technologies in order to be bought by the big guys, which is a very different. I mean, a little of that has always happened, but now I don't see the other pathway existing at all. So it used to be that if somebody put out a system, a, a service that didn't serve you, you could vote with your feet and just leave um, and go and take your take your things up. I mean, that's, you know, people... People used MySpace and then they decided that Facebook was better and they moved to Facebook. But, you know, Facebook has become kind of the roach motel of social networks, right? You check in, but you can never check out. 
I think that the breaking of that system is something we're seeing across a lot of uh, about the uh, the uh, the ecosystem, and that's the problem that I'm concerned about. It's not any particular tech company; it's the fact that they don't compete with each other, and there's really only four or five places to go, and it's stifling new entrants. Do you think we need to break up the tech companies, split YouTube from Google, split WhatsApp and Instagram from Facebook? Um, I think that's one thing that should be considered. I think that's actually really hard. There are lots of other things that we could do that we might be able to do more quickly. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not opposed to them, but you know, as a as a lawyer, that that pathway is not all that easy given the current law. I think that we could do a lot to require what my colleague Corey Doctorow calls adversarial interoperability a way to interoperate with these current ones so that you you don't necessarily have to break them up, but you can reduce their power by giving people other options within the system. Uh, you know, I, I used to joke that, uh, I still joke sometimes that I, I, I look forward to the day when Facebook is just another node on the Mastodon Fediverse, right? Like, I don't think people have to, so what I would rather see, I think, I think it's fine. I'm not opposed to breaking things up, but you know, sometimes instead of shooting for the moon, you might shoot for a couple steps forward and pushing these companies to reopen their interfaces, to embrace standards for interoperability rather than closed and controllable APIs. You know, know, Facebook got so much of our contact data because it let you upload all your Google contacts, right? And now Facebook won't let those go anywhere else. Uh, You know, there's lots of places. And again, we've written a whole series of blog posts about different kinds of adversarial interoperability. And I think that ought to be on the menu of anybody who's concerned about competition, because it, it's something we can do much more quickly than I think we're going to be able to do something like breakups. Well, I think the YouTube Google one just makes sense. Imagine how much money YouTube would be worth split off. Same thing with Instagram at this point. You, Facebook's kind of like the dying horse. You just <laughs> need to take it out back and shoot it and let the other two run, because that that's kind of where it's headed. No one really uses Facebook anymore, do they? Other than Other than mostly kind of middle-aged Americans that love to check in on their kids and their kids' kids. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't fall for the fallacy that the only people who count are young people. In terms of advertising revenue, it's a pretty big chunk from just Facebook itself right now. I, you know, again, I'm not opposed to breaking it up, but I don't think that, I guess, the difference between the way that you're thinking about it and maybe the way I think about it is I'm much more of a tactician and a, a, and a strategy person. And so I think about what could we actually do and what are the hurdles to doing it. So I think that that some of, you know, that breaking WhatsApp off from Facebook will be easier than breaking Instagram off from Facebook. And I think that, um, so again, I, I don't disagree with you about like if we were sitting in a white room and we had a big whiteboard and we were trying to decide what we ought to do, what would be the sensible things that would be on our list. I'm much more in steeped in what the what the law looks like and what the pathway looks like to get from here to there. And when I look at those, I think that breaking up is fine. And I don't think we should stop that pressure because that pressure may help with other things. You know, see other thing about policymaking and lawmaking is if you put some pressure here, sometimes you could help make things happen over there. But I think that adversarial interoperability ought to be on the list of things that we demand. And that can include some very simple legal reforms like reforming the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which treats some forms of interoperability as if they are criminal hacking, right? We've seen cases like the LinkedIn HiQ case recently where LinkedIn tried to argue that somebody who was scraping the public information on LinkedIn was breaking federal hacking laws. So CFAA could used to be reformed, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which has very limited ability for people to do reverse engineering in the context of something that's showing content and user license agreements that prevent people from building interoperable interoperable or competitive products. These are all very not hard things to do. um, How do you do do it without regulation though? So regulating that they have to do it and then thereby making it harder for the up and comers to create something because they also have to be interoperable. I don't think you have to push push them to do it. I think you have to stop making it criminal for them to do it, right? You have to you have to take away what is now a punishment for trying to do it and make it a level playing field. That's very different than mandating that they have to. Of course, we could do that too. The F, you know, the FCC, you know, the reason that we can all plug anything we want to into the wall, you know, back in the day when you had to do that in order to have a modem to get on the internet and the 
you know, the telephone company said, oh, we can't possibly let you plug anything else into your phone thing because it'll blow up the system. And the FCC said, no, you have to let people plug other devices into the wall, not just your own phones. And that's why we all got modems back in the day. So there's roles that regulators can play to level the playing field and require this. But but in the context of the CFAA, the DMCA and end user license agreements, we just have to say, look, it's unenforceable. You cannot you cannot sue or send the cops after somebody who is interoperating with your product for competitive purposes. You just you just and then you you level that playing field. You don't have to, you know, so so yes, mandates can be interesting, but right now what we have are barriers and and the easy thing to do is to get the barriers down. And again, I'm not saying, you know, we are looking very closely at antitrust law and competition law and unfair competition law. And frankly, the Europeans are going to do a lot of work in this area too. So it's not like those things are mutually exclusive, but I, I, I feel like a lot of people who think about this immediately rush to the breakup model because that's kind of what we all remember with AT&T. Uh, and that's not the only way and shouldn't be the only way that we think about bringing more competition to this space. Yeah, it's just the one that sounds sexy. It's like with the the Apple iPhone repairs, and you got to be a licensed repairer, or you got to have yep. licensed Apple products. It's a it's a scam and a monopoly, and somehow it's allowed to continue on. Are you? Yep, and, yeah, and there there's cases about this, you know, from cars, right? It used to be, you know, you had to use genuine GM parts to fix a car, and there was a whole set of uh, legal cases about your right to use something else. But right now, we're seeing Apple doing the same thing. Of course, the some of the worst and the the biggest. Uh, the biggest, um, I think, frustrations for a lot of people is what printer companies do, right, to try to make sure that, you know, they give you this cheap printer and then they charge you a zillion dollars for the ink and then they do all sorts of things to try to prevent you from using off-market ink products. And I just think that that, you know, that, that, that we ought to put a lot more pressure on the people who build us our technologies to be, uh, to allow interoperability and we should punish them if they don't. I would agree. The big problem is you don't think about it before you buy it. You right. Bu- but you buy it and then you're like, oh, shoot. Yeah, but consumer reports should be reporting on it. We can all learn these things, right? And they just shouldn't be able to do it, right? I mean, they oh, should just be the, yeah, they, you know, Lexmark sued, you know, a, 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 a company that, that made off-market printer cartridges. And, you know, that poor company ultimately went under before the case ended. But that ought to be not possible, right? We should change the law. It's, it's, you know, compared to changing antitrust law, this is a much smaller lift and say, you know, uh, interoperating with someone is, is a value that we have. It's, it's, it's in public policy favors interoperability. And we are going to, we are not going to allow any of these laws um, or any contractual terms to be enforced if they get rid of interop, if they don't allow for interoperability. We do this in lots of other places in contract law, right? It's in California where I'm based. It's, Void against public policy to try to lock somebody into, you know, to to not let somebody take their next job, you know, by lo- blocking them out of a whole industry by a non-compete agreement. That's just not enforceable under California law because it's void against public policy. We could very easily say not allowing interoperability by a competitor into your product is void as against public policy in the state of California or federally and open up a lot of spaces that have been blocked because it's pretty hard to get funding for something if your funding model is, well, first we have to withstand the lawsuit and then we can provide the product. Exactly. And then there's the whole flip side argument, the splinter net, China, and then more recently, Chinese, not curation per se, but more capitalist censorship from a communist country. Talk a little bit more about what's been happening and where you guys are at. Well, you know, we certainly have been blogging about it and writing about it. I will say that our ability as an American NGO with a bunch of American lawyers to really have, you know, do the kind of activist litigation work in, uh, um, that is kind of centered to what EFF does in China is pretty is zero, right? Like we don't have the ability to use the levers of the NGO community that we have here. Uh, in China, but we certainly have been watching it, and I think that I mean the the Hong Kong the Hong Kong protesters have been amazingly adept at kind of using some of those you know protecting themselves against facial recognition, recognizing how to have secure communications in a very very hostile environment, and and managed to keep their movement going despite tremendous tremendous efforts. But you're right. I mean the Chinese government has been amazing uh, at 
basically conscripting lots of ordinary people uh, into, you know, serving as their censors and propaganda arm. And I think that is a, a very big problem. And, it, and to me, as a matter of kind of statecraft, it's really sad that the American government, which used to spend a lot of energy supporting people who were doing this, has been pretty quiet about this process. And in fact, has instead of seeing it as a human rights problem, has, you know, looks like they're more trying to emulate it than they're trying to fight it. And then there's Apple, who's pulling the Hong Kong protesters apps. You've got the NBA coach who's tweeting about the Hong Kong situation and then the league coming down on them. There's so much money in China because of the population that companies are, they're turning the other eye and saying, be my guest. Yeah, I think it's really, it's really problematic. And I think that it's, you know, we need civil society around the world and the governments that stand for human rights around the world to create another poll to say, look, you know, you as a company, you've got to decide if you're going to play with those dictators, like you're not going to be able to participate over here. And we are going to decide with our money, you know, with our attention, with our help, you know, governments help companies all around the world to try to get contracts and deals and stuff like that. Like we are not going to help you unless you're on the side of freedom, unless you're on the side of human rights. And, you know, again, the American government has largely exited the stage in terms of doing this. And I think Europe has not stood up as much as they they ought to. Um, but I think that if there's only the, the pull of the corrupt, uh, the corrupt uh, dictatorship and there's not a counter pull for freedom and human rights around the world, you're going to see companies feel like, you know, they'd be a fool if they didn't participate in this way. But it wasn't always so. And it doesn't have to be so again. What's the collective action problem? It's climate change. It's everybody pooping in the toilet and who cleans the toilet. It's <laughs> when everyone else benefits and I don't benefit. I got to benefit, right? How do we do? Well, it's well, it's also again, I think it comes back and at least in terms of things like Apple, it comes back to us not having very good other choices, right? It comes back to competition, right? I mean, somebody could come and eat their lunch and say, look, we, you know, you don't want to. Well, we've seen did. this. Yeah, well, we've seen we've seen in areas about clothes or makeup or sports equipment, right? Patagonia by saying, look, we're we're not going to play with these bad guys. We're not going to be, we're not, you know, we care about the environment. We are going to work in an environment sensitive way. They have created a market for people like that. I think if we had a more competitive tech system, you would begin to see people who would make their proposition to the, you know, we're the dictatorship free company come with us. Right. And but right now, nobody else can get a footing. And I, again, I think that, you know, as somebody who who thinks that markets have a real role to play, we are seeing a lot of barriers to the market forces playing out. And I, and honestly, I think that's why you see people pushing for regulation across the board is because they don't think that the market is providing them with the options that it ought to. And so they're looking for something more direct. And I can understand that. But I still think, you know, trying to level the playing field and create real markets so somebody can ask you and 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 pitch to you a humane version of a phone that still works awesomely to go against would would really put a bright light on the fact that Apple doesn't want you to see what they're doing here and give people the chance to vote with their feet. And Apple really has their for lack of a better term Apple's balls are in a vice. Because they manufacture everything over in China as well. So their entire business model is dependent on China. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I uh, but they made those choices. And I think a lot of people were pretending like the Chinese government was not what it was. And also, I think a lot of people, you know, there was this theory and it was a theory when I was a kid, you know, uh, right around Tiananmen Square time. That, you know, like if we engaged with more business in China, it would make China more friendly to human rights and anti-corruption and, and fairness. And I just think there's no evidence for that. In fact, it goes the other way, right? I think that the, the engagement with uh, China has not moved China towards the better. It's moved a lot of companies towards the worse. And um, so we need to come up with a different strategy than trying to pretend like us making a lot of money off of China is also a virtuous, you know, helping to helping the Chinese people because it, it doesn't appear that it is in terms of democracy and freedom and human rights. I would agree on a lot of that, but I would say that it has moved the Chinese people. While it hasn't moved the Chinese government, I would say that a lot of those changes have occurred on an individual basis. 
but the individual trade-offs of the prosperity that their government has brought has made it more worthwhile to give up those freedoms from a Chinese perspective. Oh, yeah. I think that, I mean, I, yeah, I want to be clear. I think you're right. I mean, I'm not talking about prosperity. I think the Chinese government has done a very good job of bringing a lot of people out of poverty, but it just hasn't, along with that, has not come freedom and democracy and freedom and, and, and basic rights. And I, again, I think a lot of people were hoping that those two things would go together. And I think it's it's just painfully obvious now that they don't necessarily go together, that you also have to care about freedom and democracy and human rights and not just care about prosperity if you really want to if you want to build a you know a, a world where 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 people have freedom capitalism and democracy are not necessarily completely intertwined i think hong kong is a really good example of this right i mean we're seeing a country that uh, you know a, 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 a part of the world that used to have a lot of freedom slowly losing it as um, it becomes deeper and deeper embedded in the chinese and again like i just don't think that anybody who thinks that they're evidence based can look at these situations and think that our theory that these two things would go together has been proven out. I think just the opposite. So, you know, that means we need to pay attention to these values for themselves or else just be comfortable with creeping dictatorship, authoritarianism and corruption around the world, which if you think it's going to stay in China and not leak out to the rest of us, I think you're also missing the evidence. Yeah, speaking of leaking, you kind of hinted at that earlier, but a lot of it appears to be our government is like, hmm, what are you guys doing? Some of this looks pretty good. Yeah, I, um, I am worried about that. And I think that um, we're seeing a lot more of it, right? We're seeing a lot more embrace of corruption and a lot more looking at, you know, you know, kind of an anti-corrupt strategy as being looked upon as kind of weak and lame as opposed to one that is... Yeah, well, then there's also surveillance, that's what I which meant. of course is well. Thank you. Well, that's actually where I spend more of my time, right? Um, you know, I've been trying to stop the NSA from spying on everybody uh, for since 2006. Um, uh, you know, a good a good chunk of time before Mr. Snowden showed up and pre presented the world with you know kind of incontrovertible evidence that the government was the U.S. government and the Five Eyes. The you know that not just the U.S. government was attempting to spy on the entire world. Attempting or succeeding. Well, I think it's really hard to spy on the entire world. So one of the things we keep hearing whenever we see a FISA court decision or other kinds of decisions is that they actually can't do it very well. That doesn't mean it's not a problem. It's not that they're failing, but that actually trying to spy on the whole world so that you can figure out who's a bad guy is not doesn't work all that well. <laughs> um, so what's well, the data? Uh, it's the data problem of how do you curate? How do you decide? Correct. Correct. And, 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 and that the kinds of things that they're trying to stop, at least the kinds of things that they're talking to you and me about trying to stop, which are things like terrorism, you know, they don't really lend themselves to machine learning strategies where uh, you can figure out who's a bad guy by looking at the other behavior of, of uh, you know, of other people, because it, it turns out there's not enough training data and it's pretty hard to do. So again, they are absolutely collecting massive, massive amounts of information off of key internet checkpoints, but the ability to turn that into something that really makes you and I um, safer is um, not at all demonstrated. In fact, the phone records program that they did in secret for a very long time and, 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 and ended uh, with the USA Freedom uh, Law turned out to have no impact on terrorism uh, when they actually looked at it. So I think that that the the reason I say it doesn't work is I think it's not doing the things that they promised it would do, but they are still managing to collect a whole lot of information about a whole lot of people, and it's being misused. When it grows, this is what scares me the most is every new crazy shooter, every terrorist attack is just another slippery excuse to add a little bit. And when, yep. you, when you make something like that, that can't really be cut down, it can only build bigger, you have massive problems. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I, I, I worry that right now we're kind of in this, we're, we're in that trapped position where there's no way to, un, to, to, to do less surveillance. There's only a one-way ratchet, even though it doesn't have the kind of benefit that it was sold as. And then, of course, more importantly, like, you know, that has a real impact on all the rest of us, right? I mean, people 
you know, the ability to have a private conversation is a core thing that, that makes us human and makes us free. And we are not in a place where we can have a private conversation online without using encryption. And of course, the government's coming after that too. How do you think about that? What do consumers need to know and where are we headed? Well, I think that consumers need to know that their ability to have a private conversation is on the line in these fights about encryption. And you know, I don't know where we're headed, but it was it's extremely troubling that we see, you know, uh, Attorney General Barr and the um, uh, two top officials, one from Australia and one from the UK, writing this letter to Facebook saying, don't you dare encrypt messaging and, and, and fighting encryption all over the place. I think that, you know, the, the thing about encryption that, um, you know, I really care very much about privacy, but the thing about encryption is it's just a core part of our security, right? You know, if you worry about data breaches, um, if you worry about your private information flowing out there uh, in the world, encryption is your friend, right? It's the thing that helps give you security as well as privacy. And I think that the the U.S. government anyway, and I think the Australian and the British government uh, really are are making the wrong move here. And, you know, I think the way that I like to explain what encryption does is, you know, uh, and what the government is trying to do is, you know, let's just say that the local police came around to everybody's house and knocked on your door and said, look, you know, we think there are some thieves in your neighborhood. So what we want you to do is leave your front door open so that in case you're a thief, we can get in there and we can find, we can we can catch you. So is that okay? And I think most people would say, you've got to be kidding me. I want to lock my door and I want a better lock on my door if you're telling me there's thieves in the neighborhood. And the police saying, no, 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 that's not fair because we might not be able to catch the thief unless we can run through your front door at some particular point in time. And don't worry, we won't misuse that. I think all the instincts that one might have in that situation are the right ones to have with encryption, which is, one, you're making me less safe to the bad guys with your strategy. You're not making me more safe. And two, I'm not, I shouldn't be treated as if I'm your suspect. You know, do your police work and find your thief some other way. Don't find it by making me less safe. But how do you push back when the people you're pushing back against have a monopoly on the use of force? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, some of what you do is is you convince the public, right? I mean, you know, things do do fail uh, in Congress. There was an effort by uh, by Senator Burr and Senator Feinstein to try to require companies to be able to provide the plain text of any message, and it died in the Senate. And it died in the Senate because ordinary people stood up and said, "No way, don't make us less safe." So, in the you know, the police. Uh, the police have some power, but they're, they 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 operate in the United States anyway within a framework of law. And if the law, they only get the tools that the law lets them get. And so it's up to us to make sure that the law continues to stand with us. And you know, in the case of encryption, you know, in the 1990s, I I my very first big case for EFF was making sure that the publication of encryption technology was protected by the First Amendment. The case was called Bernstein versus Department of Justice. And the U.S. government had taken the position that publishing encryption software on the Internet violated the U.S. arms control uh, laws. So, you know, it was treated like a surface-to-air missile or a tank or something. And we sued in the courts um, and put a lot of political pressure both in the legislature and on the administration. And ultimately, the, the government backed down and freed up encryption from the regulatory regime. And, and that's why we have it now. You know, since the Snowden revelations, we've been able to, and EFF has been a central part of this, encrypt a huge amount of the web, right? It used to be that web connections were, you know, less than 10 to 20% encrypted. And then this is, you know, from web server to web server. So this isn't the, this isn't the consumer side of this. This is the back end of the, of the web. And since then, we've, we've gone to now uh, close to 80% of connections between, uh, on the back end of the web are encrypted. And, and that's because of the work that we've done with HTTPS everywhere. It's because of efforts that Google made after uh, Mr. Snowden's revelation showed that the NSA was tapping into their connections between their servers. It's be with work that we've done um, uh, with Let's Encrypt, providing certificate authorities and making it easy for websites to provide a secure version of their websites. Right now, we're working on securing the DNS system so that your queries, when you go to look for a, a website, are encrypted. So, you know, we've, we've made great strides in encrypting the back end of the Internet. And, you know, the government wasn't able to stop it. So, you know, it's it, it takes a lot of vigilance. It's something that we work on all the time. And it takes companies being willing to stand up for strong 
encryption, unbreakable encryption, and not to fold when the government comes and put pressure on them. And this is an area where, you know, I was critical of Apple earlier, and I've been very critical of Facebook, but Apple said no when the FBI showed up and told them that they had to break the encryption on iPhones uh, after the San Bernardino shooting. Uh, Apple stood up for their users and said, no, we're not going to we're not going to break the encryption. And Facebook so far is standing firm and saying we're not going to break the encryption on WhatsApp just because you want us to. So it takes that's them trying to, that's them trying to merge the platform so they can't get broken up from regulation, though. That's the <laughs> that's the whole back end encryption and tying it all together from Zuckerberg's side. It has to be. It, well, it certainly is. But I'm going to take the encryption benefits because it's going to save lives. Like I, I get that this is a strategy that uh, that that Zuckerberg is using, but the strategy he's using is going to protect the privacy of literally millions of people around the world. And I think that that you know I'm not a I'm not a fan of them necessarily combining all three of them, but the fact that they're going to combine them and increase the encryption, don't get me wrong, I don't think it's a good idea for lots of competition reasons. But it is going to save lives. Encryption saves lives. And we don't see that in the United States nearly as much as we see it around the world. But believe me, we see it around the world. And so he's got a choice, right? He's going to combine these three systems. Is he going to combine them and and give everybody encryption? Or is he going to combine them and dumb, dumb it down and make WhatsApp not encrypted? And the fact that he's pinning his strategy on more encryption is good for the rest of us. And we need to keep the pressure on him so that that's what actually happens and that WhatsApp stays encrypted. WhatsApp provides, WhatsApp and Apple phones provide more encryption, you know, straight up for users than than almost any other consumer facing tool. And we want to keep those companies committed to giving people secure options. I would agree. And yet in in China, and especially in Hong Kong, you don't use an iPhone because Apple's storing all their data in China now. Yeah, well, I'm not saying that, look, you know, anybody who does security understands about the need to have security in depth, and it depends on your threat model, right? Uh, if your threat model is somebody who might steal your phone, Apple's great because your phone sits encrypted at rest, right? They encrypt the data at rest. If your threat model is somebody who's going to go to Apple and give a subpoena to them to get the information, then that, you know, your threat might, you might do something different. You might want to do, you might want to not use the backups, right? I mean, you don't need to use remote backups for, for any phones. Local backups still exist, although they make it harder and harder every year. You know, EFF has a whole thing called security self-defense, which is a set of tools and trainings for people, uh, depending on who you are and what your threat model about good security systems for you. But the the kind of security you need, say, if you're a domestic violence victim and your threat is your intimate partner who has access to your machine is very different than the kind of threat model you have if you're if you're you're worried about, you know, the Chinese government and you live in China. And there are different suggestions and kind of walking people through the various options and how to do it in the security self-defense materials. And if you're somebody who knows about security, because I suspect people in your audience are, we have something called the Security Education Companion or SEC, which is a way for technical people to learn how to be good teachers of this. Because just because you know how tech work doesn't mean that you know how to teach less technical people very well. So between SSD and SEC, we're hoping to empower people to make smart decisions about how to protect themselves in the current situation. And so there's different modules if you're a journalist or if you're an activist or if you're in a hostile government or, again, if, you're, if your threat model is somebody in your own home. And keep in mind, if it's digital, it can be hacked, guys. I got two last questions for you. What technology or trend are you most excited about and why? I think I'm most excited about the increasing interest of people who work in tech to think of themselves as part of the solution um, and needing to be part of the solution. And whether we're seeing the protests um, that are happening inside tech companies or the increasing number of people who want to work for organizations like EFF who have real technical skills, I think that the it's exciting. And it's, you know, EFF has always been made up of people who understand about tech and want to make sure that it's used for good and not bad. Um, we've always been there at that place, but that place is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's reaching people very far beyond the kind of few people who were part of this movement in the 90s, for instance. So it's exciting to me to see that getting better, to see people who think that having tech skills and understanding tech deeply doesn't mean that you 
sit on the sidelines about policy fights, especially policy fights about how tech is going to be used for the rest of us. It's like the scientist. I invented it, but it's not my not mine to talk about. Yeah, that's not the that's not the way forward anymore. It's not. And I think that 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 was a rare thing. When I started out on this, it was, you know, it was great. There were always lots of people who cared about this stuff. When we did the encryption fight, I had professors from all across the country who participated in convincing the court that we were right. But now I feel like we've we've just orders of magnitude more people in tech who really understand the implications and want to be on the side of right. And so, you know, my job is to try to figure out how best to help those people get their voices heard and harness that power to really make to make make the kind of changes that we need to see made. And I want to let you get back to that. I got one last question before you tell people where to find you. And that's if you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything. What would it be and why? I think that my... My call to action would be to get involved. Don't think that technology is going to magically solve problems. We need to kick in and make sure that we're working to make sure that technology supports users and does empowers users and doesn't disempower users and that people should stand up for their right to have a voice. I, I think that there is a risk among people to feel powerless around technology and to feel like, you know, they're just as Facebook and that's all the internet is and that's all it will ever be. And I think the thing I want to tell people is, you know, we can make change. We have this power. It's not easy. It's not going to magically happen. It's not like a TV show where, you know, uh, it's done within the hour, but we can and will make really good change if people if people are willing to stand up and, 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 and make their voices heard. Here's a great song. We got to fight for our right to party. Correct. Where is the best place for people to find you, Cindy? Uh, EFF.org uh, is, uh, is our website. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. Uh, any place you, you go, but, but specifically on the um, grand old internet, old school, www.EFF.org is the best place to find us. But uh, and and take a look. You know, we we have such a range of activity. Our blog is very active. Our Twitter feed is very active. You can see all the issues we work on. I suspect, you know, you might not agree with us about everything, but I suspect for everybody out there listening, there's at least one issue where EFF has got your back. And uh, and so come come find out and come join us. Well, there's definitely a lot that have your back. They might disagree, but they definitely got your back. Thanks for coming <laughs> on today, Cindy. All right. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in, guys. If you liked it, share it around. This is important. It's the future of all of us, our privacy, our lives, the avoidance of minority report. Share it with a friend, family member. And if you run a business company, you want to get in front of our awesome audience and you've got a net positive product, service, etc. you want to promote, reach out, Matt at disruptors.fm. Until next time, go make it happen and uh, cover those cameras. Zuckerberg does. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.